You're listening to Second Breaks, a show where we explore midlife transitions and how we can thrive despite, through, and because of them. I'm Lou Blazer, your host and the publisher of Midlife Cues, a weekly newsletter about intentional living and personal growth in midlife. Check it out and subscribe at midlifecues.com. That's midlife, C-U-E-S, one word, dot com. Hello, my listener friends. I am going to start with a word of warning. There are unbeat words in this episode that may not be suitable for everybody. So if you're listening to this on a speaker, like a car radio speaker or something like that, and there are kids around or other people around, just be aware, okay? So this is our third episode in the mini-series on midlife, health, and well-being. And we need to talk about an important part of adult life, but something that isn't always discussed out loud. I'm talking about sexual health and the health of our intimate relationships, especially after menopause. Now, if you're a male listener friend, I would ask you not to leave the episode right now. I know that we're going to be talking about menopause and female body parts today, but I think that it actually helps if you know what your female partner is going through. After all, sexual health isn't one way, and to the extent that you know what's happening with your female partner, it can only help, right? And if you are a female listener friend, please know that I tried very hard to be your proxy and ask the questions that us sisters would really like to know, but are afraid or embarrassed or stymied to ask. I know what it's like for our concerns or questions to be dismissed under the umbrella of, oh, that's just menopause for you. That's so frustrating, right? And I've long wanted to broach these topics on the podcast, but I also know that I wanted it to be in conversation with someone who would like the right person who can provide a safe place while also answering factually and objectively and with empathy and I finally found the right person and I have her on the show today. So I'm very, very happy about that. Today, I am joined by Dr. Alyssa Dweck. Dr. Dweck is a practicing gynecologist and the chief medical officer at Bonafide. She is an OBGYN for over 25 years with special interest in menopausal health and female sexual health. Dr. Dweck has co-written three books and has appeared on various shows like The Today Show and Good Day LA and is a regular contributor to various print and online media outlets. She has been voted top doctor in New York Magazine and Westchester Magazine. In this episode, we talk about sexual health, mainly from the perspective of midlife women. 
Dr. Dweck clarifies misconceptions about sex during perimenopause and after menopause. We cover realities about what happens to our bodies that affect our vaginal health and our libido. And most importantly, Dr. Dweck talked about what we can do to avoid problems and continue to have a joyful sexual life in our 50s and beyond. Okie dokie. With that, let me step out of the way and I'll catch up with you at the back end. Dr. Dweck, welcome to Second Breaks. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure to be here. I can't wait to speak. I am so excited to be talking with you about the stuff that we're going to talk about. It's a uh, new territory for me and for the podcast itself, although I talk to midlifers all the time, but this is one topic that I've always wanted to explore, but I haven't found the right person, and now I have the right person to be chatting with. Let's just start in the middle of things, and if you wouldn't mind um, talking a little bit about the number one misconception that women have as it relates to sex after menopause? Well, let's just say there's a number one, two, and three misconception Mm. about sex after menopause. I think the first misconception is that there may be very obvious warning that things are going to change a little bit after your period stops for a full 12 months consecutively, which is the definition of menopause. The primary issue that goes on, of course, is minimal to much less production of estrogen because the ovaries stop producing so much estrogen and then eventually are really producing very little to none. And this is going to have an impact on vaginal health. Mm. But there's oftentimes not a warning for this so that it can take some people by surprise and catch them off guard. So that is one misconception. I see. When you say warning, as in we don't realize that the estrogen level is decreasing, is that what you mean by that? No, it's more like there is no you know, warning sign in your body that's going to say, okay, today's the day that you may have some pain or some dryness as it relates to sexual health. I see. It's unlike the standard iconic symptom of menopause, which are hot flashes or night sweats, where you may get a little bit of a warning that you're feeling warmer than usual. And then all of a sudden you may get more and more hot flashes. So you've had some sort of a preparation for this. Mm -hmm. That's also one of the earlier signs of hormonal changes. But vaginal dryness and some of the discomfort that might come along with that during sexual intimacy Mm -hmm. is something that often takes people by surprise. So that, to me, is one misconception that women have, that they're going to have some sort of fair warning. Thankfully, this is changing because conversations like what we're having now is the fair warning that we're giving people to realize that things may change a little and it might be necessary to be proactive about this to manage and optimize vaginal health. I think the other misconception can go in one of two directions. Some people feel that sex will never be the same once they go through menopause. And they are mistaken, happily, because sex is still really quite great and enjoyable and pleasurable 
after mm-hmm. menopause for various reasons, which we can get into. But by the same token, there are some people who have unrealistic expectations that their sexual lives in their 50s and 60s are supposed to be exactly like what they were in mm. their 20s. And that is a misconception because that is unlikely to be the case. Gotcha. You mentioned, I mean, it's the underlying thread across all the three misconceptions is that something that I have always heard throughout my entire 20s, 30s, 40s is that sex after menopause is painful, period, and a story. It's just painful and you're never going to enjoy it anymore because it's just painful. And so it's almost like if you have, quote unquote, have to have sex because you have a partner, you're married and that kind of stuff, or you still want to have sex, you're just going to have to deal, accept, Mm -hmm. live with some kind of pain. Can you talk a little bit about that, doctor? I would love to. And I really want to address something that you just said that I want to make sure is taken by your audience correctly. Mm-hmm. Nobody should ever have to have sex, okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. If somebody doesn't want to engage in, you know, in intimacy either with a partner or on their own, there really is no normal, but that is an individual decision mm-hmm. that needs to be arrived at, and nobody should be forcing anybody to feel that they have to have sex. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. And I want to really reiterate that and hit that home. With that said, I surely see so many women in my practice who are worried that if they don't continue to engage sexually, that their partners, if they are partnered, may not want to remain with them and they may go look for a a younger model, Mm -hmm. uh, as in car model, if you will, not, not a, not a fashion model. Um, you know, that's disconcerting and worrying and upsetting, and it can be really quite debilitating to somebody's emotional well-being. So with that said, there are people who want to maintain their sexual lives, not because they're necessarily feeling it so much, but for that reason. And also because they want to maintain a sense of closeness, intimacy, bonding, and uh, closeness with their partners. And Many of these people claim to be incredibly happily partnered. It's Mm -hmm. just that the sexual part becomes difficult because they are anticipating pain or maybe their desire isn't quite as strong as it was or even present at all. And so um, people feel like they really have to ramp up and uh, make make more than a heroic effort to involve themselves uh, sexually. But I also want to comment on something else you said, which is that people have to experience pain. The natural course of things is that pain may be experienced. Over time, with less estrogen, the vagina is naturally going to become less elastic, it's going to become smaller, shorter, narrower, and also, uh, you know, more delicate, prone to uh, injury or little abrasions and pain, even more prone to infection as a result of diminished estrogen. So for this reason, we really work on being proactive to prevent that from being a chronic and progressive issue and start managing it before it's such a problem. How do we do this? Well, first is going to be lifestyle uh, management because this anybody can engage in. 
hydrate well. So we really need to hydrate well because, you know, just like our general skin gets well hydrated, our mouth gets hydrated, and if we're not hydrated enough, we will feel dry. The vagina responds similarly, so that has to be done. Number two, think about medical problems that one may have that are chronic that may affect blood flow. Because Mm. what really happens when estrogen is low is that blood flow diminishes to the vaginal tissue, and then the cells are much, much more delicate and less elastic. So we need to make sure blood flow is good. There are a lot of ways to do this. The first is to try to prevent or manage diseases that cause uh, impaired blood flow. Mm -hmm. Diabetes or prediabetes can impair blood flow. Mm-hmm. Heart disease, cardiovascular disease of any sort, so high blood pressure, uh, you know, coronary artery disease, any of these things are going to minimize blood flow and cause more dryness, or at least not help to enhance moisture. Medications that people take, so the big one that I see on a very regular basis are antihistamines for allergies. So, you know, these oh. dry everything. They don't only dry the nasal passages, but they may dry the vaginal I tissue didn't too. So, that. Yes, if you're somebody who's suffering, this may be an avenue to pursue and use a nasal spray if your doctor or healthcare provider uh, feels that would be helpful for allergies, let's say, instead Mm -hmm. of a systemic medication, which may dry out the vagina tissues. So Mm -hmm. those are a couple of things, but I think you can kind of see where I'm going with blood flow. Um, Lastly, products that we use can sometimes... Uh, which we've loved for years and years and have never caused any problems. And I'm not, you know, outing any products in specific, but I'm just saying that certain ingredients of certain products can actually cause dryness or irritation to a delicate vagina. So you may have to really mix up your, you know, general, I hate to use the word hygiene, but general health and wellness regimen of products to really um, optimize the health of the vagina. Um, This is where a probiotic may also come in handy. So I Mm -hmm. often recommend Bonafide's probiotic called Clair-V to help optimize the microbiome in the vagina Mm -hmm. and help to prevent any imbalance of organisms that might also lead to dryness and discomfort. Blood flow. One more thing, and sometimes I have to actually prescribe this to my uh, you know, a little more shy patients. And oftentimes I will write on a prescription pad, please dust off or purchase your first vibrator mm-hmm. and use an external stimulator or vibrator in mm-hmm. an effort to enhance blood flow right. and use it regularly to the external genitalia or inside the vagina if you're comfortable doing that. Not only is this pleasurable, but it's just like a massage of any other tissue. It enhances blood flow when you use it. So even if it has to be a medicinal recommendation, using a vibrator can be helpful to enhance blood flow. There are herbal supplements that can and have been shown to enhance blood flow during the sexual response. So uh, once again, Bonafide really noted this to be an issue of concern for women. And um, puts out a product called Restella. Restella mm. contains an ingredient called pycnogenol, a big wordful, uh, to describe an ingredient that's natural. It is a non-drug and it is a non-hormone that works to help 
uh, dilate the blood vessels in the genital area mm-hmm. when you are becoming aroused, so during the sexual response. So more blood flow occurs in the genital area, and this can um, really help with uh, mitigating some of the discomforts that go along with dryness. What else do we use for dryness as a symptom, whether the symptom also includes painful sex or if you're just having dryness on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. We use a, you know, over-the-counter, non-drug, non-hormonal moisturizers as a first step all the time. So the magic ingredient right now seems to be something called hyaluronic acid. This is a natural ingredient. It's in loads of moisturizers. It's in, you know, many, many uh, non-intimate moisturizers, but it's now being found in moisturizers. And once again, Bonafide was spot on, noting that um, this was a really unmet need. And they do promote a insert that goes in the vagina two to three times a week called Reverie. This is incredibly popular incredibly well tolerated and well received quite literally and it's a little teeny insert that gets placed in the vagina at night two to three times a week it melts and dissolves and the hyaluronic acid holds on to Mm. loads and loads of moisture and helps to repair and revitalize the uh, vaginal tissue so that dryness isn't an issue and so that intimacy can be more comfortable. We pair this sometimes with a lubricant, which you can use during sex, but the Mm -hmm. moisturizers have to be used all the time because once you stop, all of these symptoms are going to return. Right. Uh, Full disclosure to the listeners, I'm very familiar with Bonafide. Not only have I used the products, but I also am a subscriber to the newsletter, which is very helpful. And I find it so informational because there are so many things that we need to be understanding about what goes on in our bodies that we don't always have um, the avenues or the right conversations to be having. I know for facts, I love my mom, but she never had these conversations with me throughout my life. I never had these conversations. I never knew. And I mean, the funny thing is, my mom would tell me about the moisturizer for my face, but I never had conversations around uh, about moisturizers for the vagina. So I never heard anything about these. So, and hopefully this is a generational thing that is yes, changing. This is absolutely a generational thing. And it's also, um, you know, due to the way people are brought up, certain value systems, how is. Uh, you know, sexual health spoken about, if at all, in the family structure or culturally. These days, there's so much information online that anybody can look things up. But of course, reputable sources have to be uh, really, truly vetted. But, you know, look at the conversation we're having right now. So hopefully this info will get out to the masses and it will become more comfortable for so many other people to speak about. Yeah. Yes. So um, I have a, uh, I, I know this is potentially a rabbit hole, but I do wanted to a bring it up to even for just a little bit as we were talking about different things that we can do to help or to prevent or to avoid or to supplement. Uh, I have heard, and again, full disclosure, I have not used, did not use HRT, but I have heard that using HRT helps prevent vaginal dryness or improve vaginal health. Is that true or is that a myth? 
Yes, that is absolutely true. But I would like to just make a distinction. And, and I was going to get to um, estrogen uh, as a way to manage vaginal dryness for sure. But HRT signifies generally hormone replacement therapy that's systemic. So taken in a way and in a dosage and in a regimen that goes through your entire bloodstream in an effort to help manage hot flashes, night sweats, you know, vaginal dryness, but also to help protect bones. We're not really going there today because we're mostly speaking about sexual health, but the other very, very common form of estrogen as it relates to sexual health is minimally absorbed vaginal estrogen. So as we mentioned, one of the very first steps that we use for you know, advice for anybody suffering with this symptom is an over-the-counter moisturizer. But if that doesn't help, going towards a hormonal minimally absorbed product might be uh, really, really helpful. Estrogen in this form can come in the form of a cream, which you apply with an applicator. It can mm -hmm. come in the form of a little tablet that you place in the vagina, either with an applicator or manually. And it can come in the form of a ring that gets placed in the vagina and left there for three months at a time to slowly secrete vaginal uh, estrogen in a, in a very slow amount of time. And it's changed out every three months. These have been incredibly helpful for many, many women who are suffering with the symptom of dryness and also with uh, the symptom of painful sex for the reason of dryness. I will say, though, there is some hesitancy that remains around using estrogen in any shape or form because people are still fearful of cancer. They're fearful of, you know, blood clot. They're fearful of side effects that can occur as a result of estrogen, which, again, is a whole other podcast, which I'm happy mm -hmm, right. to address any questions you have. Um, but uh, there are also women who really cannot take any estrogen for various reasons, whether it's a medical problem that they had like breast cancer or uterus cancer, or whether it's something like, uh, you know, a history of having had a blood clot. These women have to be individualized ah, on their therapy and really gotcha. follow with their own doctors to decide whether the risk is worth taking estrogen even minimally absorbed. Gotcha. You also mentioned um, the use of vibrators. I had heard this um, also, and I can't, I should have researched this before I chatted with you because I can't come out, I think, of the name for it. But there are these uh, dilators. And I, dilators that we're supposed yes. to use and they're increasing sizes. Is that something that you could talk about? Absolutely. So, uh, vaginal dilators have really become a lot more spoken about, although they've been around for a very long time. For those who may never have Oh, heard they have of, been around for a, while, a long time. I See, I thought it was a new tool. <laughs> yes, but similar to now feeling more comfortable speaking about this subject in general, vaginal dilators are now more of the common vernaculum rather than, you know, a hidden, sh you know, hush-hush yes. term. Yeah. So in general, for those who are unfamiliar... Vaginal dilators are usually come in a set and they are tiny little cylinders that almost, and I hate to use the term, but I'm going to, they look like little teeny dildos. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're meant to be phallically shaped and, you know, uh, resemble a, a penis. And in general, dilators start out super skinny and super small mm -hmm. and gradually and sequentially they get larger in width, mm -hmm. length, 
and uh, girth. The purpose of dilators is to do exercises with them very gradually and systemically so that you slowly and gradually increase both the mechanical stretching of the vagina, the opening, the depth, and the width, and you do that very gradually. But the other beauty of dilators is that they're typically done on your own without having the pressure of having to please a partner. So you do these exercises on your own, maybe two, three times a week, you know, 10, 15 minutes a session, and everybody's got their own, you know, preferred regimen. And after about eight to 12 weeks, it is very possible to achieve a size dilator that will, you know, mirror the size of a partner. But you have the opportunity to train your brain not to anticipate pain when something goes in the vagina. Because naturally, what do, what would anybody do if they're anticipating pain? They clench the muscles, and then the vagina puts up a big do not enter sign, and nothing's going to go in there no matter what. So exactly. what happens with the dilators is that you mechanically stretch the vagina, and you train the brain that this doesn't have to hurt on a very gradual and on your own terms type of basis. And it's really a very successful program for those who stick with it. And then after the 8 to 12 weeks, we usually have somebody dilate once a week or so as a maintenance, just so Mm -hmm. you don't uh, lose all the uh, benefits of your hard work. Gotcha. Now, like vibrators, dilators, you don't have to have a prescription, I would imagine, to get dilators. No, there, there are some that may eventually require a prescription. But for right now, there are so many different types of dilators You can get them in different materials, plastic, silicone, uh, glass, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, all all kinds of materials. Number two, you can get them in sets or you can buy individual ones. Uh, they are, they are common enough that they're even sold on Amazon Mm. and you can get like a no brand name and that's perfectly fine as long as you're using them, uh, you know, properly and sequentially and carefully and on your own terms. Mm Yeah. Gotcha. You mentioned something earlier, doctor, that I also wanted to clarify about the, uh, like decreased. Again, I don't know if this is a myth or if this happens across all women or men too. I don't know, but decreased sexual desire. Yeah. I have heard someone said, uh, that it is a mindset thing because we're anticipating pain and so therefore we're saying we don't like sex anymore and I don't know. Could you clarify that a little? Uh, on that yes, so I. how much time do we have, right? Uh. So, <laughs> <laughs> this is always a really loaded question because it's complicated, oh. okay? Uh. You know, for women, this is probably the biggest sex organ, okay? And I'm pointing to my head for those who are listening and not seeing uh, this video. Uh, In general, there is certainly a psychological component to uh, sexual drive. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is something that has to be taken into account. It is very important that women remain in the moment when they are engaging in intimacy, If you're thinking about the groceries you need to buy, if you're thinking about the, uh, you know, laundry you need to do, the money you are making or not making this uh, month, these are all things that uh, are going to be very distracting and Mm -hmm. um, are not uh, are not things that are going to promote 
intimacy or sexual drive. Number two, relationship. Relationship matters. If you are not attracted to or aren't happy in your relationship and not attracted to your partner, your libido is naturally naturally going to sour. There's also something to be said about novelty. Because, you know, when you introduce some sort of novelty in a happy but kind of bored relationship, you may enhance some sexual drive. Of course, I'm going through these points extremely quickly, but when I do a full libido consultation, we go into these things in great detail. I then also want to mention that a lot of this is hormonal. Things change as you're going through menopause, and on the hormonal level, less estrogen means more dryness in the vagina and the potential for pain. What does that mean? You'd rather avoid pain, so you'd rather avoid sex. And then it becomes a vicious cycle, and you overall just tend to avoid. And then eventually your libido really will uh, dampen as a result of that. Uh, Number three, blood flow comes to a, a, a little bit of a standstill during menopause because of less estrogen. So we need to enhance that whether it's with estrogen we spoke about or with an amazing moisturizer like Reverie with hyaluronic acid or even just a lubricant or with vigorous exercises having to do with vibrators and dilators. Uh, Number three, some women do benefit from a male hormone called testosterone. And even though this is not an FDA-approved medication for women, we do use it off-label frequently to help women get a little bit of a into their uh, step, if mm-hmm. you will, a little bit more of a uh, uh, swing in their step as it relates to uh, uh, sexual drive. Lastly, we always go back to medical issues. So if somebody is having a chronic medical issue, even something like depression, where they're taking an antidepressant, the, the probably the, the most well-known and maybe the least well-publicized side effect of not of, of many of the medications we use to treat de- depression can have a negative effect on sexual drive. So oh. both the depression need to be treated and managed, the medications need to be managed, and side effects need to be mitigated in one way or another. I also want to really just mention the field of um, cancer. Because so many women, as they approach and transition through the menopause time, might be dealt, a, you know, with dealing with a diagnosis of cancer, typically breast cancer or possibly uterine cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, but particularly breast cancer, which is hitting some women well before they go through menopause. So they end up through their treatments potentially going through early and instant menopause as a result of being treated for breast cancer. And so what some women traverse naturally over a long period of time and gradually hits some of these women extremely abruptly, and it just wreaks havoc. So these are women that we try to treat aggressively in the best way that we know how uh, to try to mitigate these symptoms. This is why I said there's a lot to unpack in your question about libido, because it's biologic, it's uh, medical, it's hormonal, it's psychological, it's emotional. One last thing that nobody ever really likes to talk about and typically triggers either tears or this big aha light bulb in my office is what I like to call sexual self-esteem. And this has to do with weight and body image. 
So, so many of my patients will uh, confide in me and say, you know, I just don't feel my best because I'm not happy with my weight or my tone. I'm not exercising as I should be. I'm not on the right diet. I'm not watching myself and, and really promoting the self-care in my, in my diet and exercise and stress reduction that I should. And therefore, I don't feel sexy because, and, and therefore, I don't feel sexual. And this is a difficult topic to broach, but it is something that is part of the paradigm to, to manage lower sexual drive. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for that, doctor. I had probably known maybe intuitively one or two of those things that you said, but just having a conversation about the entirety of all the things that could affect our libido, our sexual desire is so helpful. It's not just one thing and you can't just, it can't just be in your mindset or it can't just be, it's a, a lot of, oh my God. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, there's a I'm, visual that really hits this home. Uh, you know, a mentor of mine gives lectures on this topic all the time, and he always shows a slide of libido in men, which just looks like a simple old-fashioned light switch on and off, okay? <laughs> and then libido in women, a separate slide, which literally looks like mission control at NASA before like a space launch. Tons of dials and buttons and lights and alarms. So I think yeah. that kind of, uh, that yeah. visual should, uh, explain things. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, this has been, uh, doctor, I think I'm just going to have to invite you again because I have so many follow-up questions that I want to ask, but I wanted to just wrap it up with some, um, uh, quick, hopefully, I don't know, maybe there's another rabbit hole type of questions that I'm going to end up asking, but like just some myths that we've heard, um, about uh, the caring of our vagina to maintain vaginal health. So, for example, if you could just clarify, uh, I've heard that women past a certain age, if you're menopausal, if you're not having, if you're not sexually active anymore, you don't need to go to a gynecological exam and all that kinds of stuff. Is this true? Uh, yes and no. So the newer guidelines as it relates to pap smears, which is the screening test for cervical cancer, mm -hmm. um, suggests that after age 65 in a healthy person who's always mm -hmm. had normal pap smears before, uh, don't necessarily need to come in for a pap test and don't necessarily need to see a gynecologist unless they're having a gynecologic problem. So that has sort of translated to some people as I no longer need to see the gynecologist, which I don't really personally accept, but that is a somewhat standard guideline. So I think that caveat is something that needs to be appreciated. Just being sexually active isn't reason enough to see a gynecologist, but why not check in with the person who you should have a wonderfully personal relationship with and might be the only healthcare provider you can discuss sexual or other, uh, you know, women's health issues with. Why not check in with them once a year? It just seems reasonable and uh, and and something that could really offer some preventative uh, preventative health and wellness. So I, th I think that kind of answers that question. Yes. Yeah. With that said, in a more rural area where there aren't a lot of gynecologists, many uh, women do find themselves just checking in with their 
family physicians or their internal medicine doctors or even a telehealth provider of some sort to check in on their gynecologic health. Got it. A couple more of these, uh, is this true type things, doctor? Uh, douching? Douching is out. So Douching you know, is out. Okay. Douching is out. Douching is out in the gynecology world. However, that doesn't mean that loads and loads of people do not still engage in this practice. Uh, basically, douching can, is, is a practice where usually a fluid, either plain mm-hmm. water or vinegar and water, which is considered to be an acidic, you know, more of an acidic pH solution, uh, or something with a fragrance or a cleanser or something of that nature, are plunged into the mm-hmm. vagina in an effort to cleanse it. Not only is this unnecessary, it very well may cause more harm than good. And the reason is the vagina naturally has mechanisms to promote healthy tissue with the normal balance of good and bad bacteria. The Mm. vagina has an ecosystem, just like our skin, just like our gut. And this ecosystem knows how to balance itself and remain in the right pH and remain healthy and free of uncomfortable symptoms. Douching is very well known to disrupt this. And so it is frowned upon by most gynecologists. With that said, there are probably some people who've been douching forever and find it to be a uh, uh, comfortable practice, but I I don't advocate for that. Well, based on your answer, doctor, it's not just uh, midlife women who shouldn't, who it's not advisable. It's like younger women. It's everybody. Douching as a general statement isn't necessarily needed because we have natural ways of cleansing and balancing ourselves. Gotcha. Um, waxing. Can we still wax down there? Or I've heard that no more waxing because tissue down there is thin is not good. Yeah, this is 100% individual preference. Mm. So hair removal in various shapes, forms, and in various methods, can, if done safely by, you know, uh, a, a provider or on your own, uh, for some people is quite desirable. The amount of hair removed is very individual. The real evolutionary purpose of pubic hair is to help to cushion the pubic bone underneath so Mm. that maybe during intercourse, thrusting, or some sort of exercise or potential trauma, that bone is being protected. And the pubic hair also evolutionary serves a second purpose, which is that it traps the natural scent of something called pheromones, which are natural, you know, uh, particles, chemicals that the body secretes that are related to mate selection. Mm -hmm. So that's what pubic hair is typically uh, thought to be for. Uh, With that said, plenty of women remove everything. Some women remove nothing. And then there's everything in between. Big issues that can arise with hair removal is usually what we call folliculitis, which means inflamed hair follicles, and Mm -hmm. that can be uncomfortable. Some people call it razor burn. So there are ways to help to mitigate that. Does does being menopausal increase the 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 risk of uh, of that happening? 
it is possible that the tissue may be a little bit more delicate during mm-hmm. menopause and with hair removal, depending on the method of removal. However, many women in menopause start to lose their, you know, pubic hair. Uh, so they have a little bit less to have to manage if they are taking care of that. Gotcha. All right. Oh my goodness, doctor. This has been a fascinating conversation with me. I have it tons has. of questions. So I'm just going to have to invite you again. It would be my pleasure. Um, and I'm so glad is that we have these kinds of conversations. We have women like you, doctors like you, because I also have heard of doctors who, if you ask these questions, their answer is, that's just part of menopause. And, you know, it's just something you live with as part of menopause. And it's not helpful. So I'm just so grateful, grateful, grateful that I we have women like you, doctors like you. And also, again, this is not a sponsored episode. But I will just say the the bona fide newsletter, at least it's very helpful for me. I love the the articles that come out, it's just been very helpful and information. I really appreciate hearing that. You know, we spoke before about how the internet can be kind of the Wild West in terms of information. I personally oversee a lot of that content and make sure that it is medically vetted and medically accurate. Uh, So I do appreciate that uh, it's providing you with education. Thank you. All right. So one last question, doctor, where is the best place to find you and Bonafide? Yeah. So please check us out on hellobonafide.com and you'll find all kinds of educational material, my bio, links to uh, products and information about products that we spoke about today. Absolutely. Great. I will put a link on the show notes. This is fantastic. I thank you. Thank you. I hope you'll be okay to come back at the show i'm just putting it out there that i'm gonna invite you again (laughs) (laughs) you have a wonderful at 25 i had no idea how i might balance my professional and personal lives and today i feel like i had so many amazing mentors and models to help me to do that I want to thank Dr. Dweck again for sharing such, such important information and insights with us. I am so thankful that we were able to have this frank conversation. Uh, You're going to find all the links to her website and social media accounts, as well as some highlights of this episode on the show notes at secondbreaks.com. Now, as a reminder, we're on a weekly cadence during this mini-series, so I'll be back next week with another important conversation around brain health, this time with Alison Liu. Thank you, my dear listener friend, for joining me today. If you liked this episode and found it useful, please do me a solid and share it with a friend or two. Especially this episode, right? Think about your girlfriends, think about your sister, you know, people in your life who could really benefit from the uh, very frank conversation that we had today. Okie dokie, I'll be back next week. Until then, keep on making your dent, my friend. Cool beans. <laughs>